welcome to Bogart's press lecture. I think number 429. <laughs> the last time Joe Visconti spoke here was lecture number 100 and something, so it was a while back. And he wasn't here. I think it was in New York. He is speaking on Blaze Illuminated Books. There will be a reception following the lecture in the first floor Alderman Library staff lounge, to which you are all unfortunately invited. Joseph is coming. The lecture is entitled uh, Blake's Graphic Imagination, The Origins of Illuminated Printing. Origins is plural because I'm looking at the technical and aesthetic origins of illuminated printing. Illuminated printing is what Blake called, uh, what we would call, relief etching, uh, which is the primary uh, mode of uh, production his uh, poetry. Uh, he began experimenting um, with the technique in 1788. What we're going to do is look at uh, the kinds of technologies that were available to Blake uh, during his years of an apprenticeship and his years as a mature uh, artist, uh, roughly uh, the second half of the 18th century. And I'm asking some very simple questions. I'm asking, uh, where did this come from? How did it evolve into this? Um, and basically, why it looks the way that it does. Those are very simple questions. Uh, where does it come from? The origin, or it originates? Uh, these are really not good. <laughs> Do I have to be right on top of these things? No, you don't. You have to press the right button. If you think Blake was uh, motivated to invent a new technique to combine image and text on one plate, uh, you would not be alone. And that kind of idea has been repeated again and get, again in Blake's studies. But you can see that there were uh, technologies from letterpress and wood engraving to intaglio, just a regular etching, could have accomplished that, if that was his primary uh, objective. Um, so we go back to this question of where did this come from. And what I'm looking at, and what I'm noticing, is that I'm noticing pen marks and brush marks, as opposed to the etching over here, which is clearly the marks of a, a needle. Uh, there, you can see right over in here uh, that I'm hatching to create a tonal uh, area. And over here, the marks are flat and the, the text is done with uh, variations in the width that are the marks of a pen on brush. Now, the, the, the real question for us is how did, does Blake solve a technical problem? The technical problem is how do you reproduce in metal the marks of pen and brush, the, uh, which is uh, the marks from a different uh, medium. So how do you reproduce the codes of drawing and painting uh, in metal using the technology then available. So when 
So in other words, why does, we know that the plate, the impression we're looking at originated from this plate. The question is, how did he come to make plates look like this, which is a relief etching, rather than this, which is the intaglio. Those plates are on the table uh, over here. You can see them after the lecture uh, and immediately see the difference between the two. So let's examine very briefly what was available to Blake uh, in the latter part of the 18th century. Uh, Blake was trained as an engraver. And these are some of the engraving tools. I'm going to show the difference between engraving and etching. Engraving, as originally uh, practiced by the Renaissance engravers, uh, was a pure method in, in that it works directly into the copper plate. And you can see by the way uh, the burin is handled, and I have a burin uh, on the table, but this is a very non-autographic technique. This is why it took seven years apprenticeship to learn how to master the tools to create the line systems that reproduce the uh, tones and images of uh, the painting or the drawing. This is a, a very difficult uh, technique. When you're pl plowing through the copper, difficult in itself, you can't do circles. You have to move the plate on that leather. Uh, so when you look at a dollar bill or any piece of money, which is still engraved, look at it with a magnifying glass and you'll be amazed. It's really a virtuoso performance in the mastery of uh, a set of codes. Uh, so this is uh, engraving. It's done directly into the copper plate. The Renaissance engravers, because they were trained as draftsmen, uh, initially laid lines uh, along uh, the way they the way they were trained as draftsmen. In other words, uh, the first generation or two of engravers uh, have drawing as the paradigm. They haven't yet evolved a very sophisticated uh, system uh, or set of sets of systems. Which now, etching when etching first was developed, also in the Renaissance, it was thought of as a counterfeit engraving. It was a way of um, reproducing the engraved line more quickly because you're using acid to bite into the metal instead of your muscle power. Uh, so what you do in uh, etching is you cover the plate with, the, this is uh, some uh, uh, resin that's uh, mixed with wax and oils. You melt it on a hot plate, a charcoal burner. Um, you spread it into a very fine, thin film. Now that's called an etching ground. Now the copper plate has been covered. And you smoke it so it's black. You turn the ground into a black, uh, sooty, uh, hard ground. <coughs> so that any line that you cut through has the punch of a real sharp contrast. Uh, also notice, this is really bad form, but it's from the 17th century. Uh, look how I'm holding. Uh, this tool. This tool is an etching, uh, actually I'm holding an H-O, but it's uh, a form of etching needle. And you hold it autographically, just as you would a pencil or a pen. In other words, you already know how to use an etching tool. You don't know how to use the engraving tool. This is why Rembrandt was a great etcher, but he couldn't engrave. This is why a lot of painters could master etching, but not engraving. Now, pure etching, uh, is easy to detect. I mean, it has 
its own look. Uh, it uh, has more the look of drawing or sketchiness. Um, and pure etching in England was pretty much a rarity. This is an example from San, uh, Paul Sandby, which he's an English artist. Uh, but this is pretty rare. In England, uh, engraving and etching were more commercialized. On the continent, like Tiepolo, there was still, with Rembrandt, Callo, Tiepolo, and others, uh, a tradition of uh, pure, engra uh, pure etching. However, in England, in Blake's England, he was an apprentice to an engraver, and as such, he learned etching because etching was combined with engraving to form what was called mixed method technique. And that was the technique used throughout uh, the Europe uh, in the 18th century. And you can see here the etcher pouring out the acid, preparing the outline, uh, and the engraver finishing it. And over here, you can see that outline quickly put the drawing into the plate, and then the master engraver finishing it up as an engraver. This is why the 18th century engravers thought they were better than Durer, Raimondi, and the Renaissance engravers. Uh, this is a, its own battle between the modern and the ancients. Uh, we see it in books, we see it in philosophy, uh, and uh, ethics, and elsewhere. But in uh, art, or in the graphic arts, uh, the 18th century engraver would argue that Durer and Raimondi were hard, stiff, dry, uh, and the modern engravers were far superior uh, because they had developed such an amazingly subtle uh, line system capable of reproducing the feel of uh, silk uh, to cloth to uh, fur, uh, something that was impossible among the Renaissance uh, engravers. This is the way you produce uh, the illusion of tone, because we're dealing with lines, not tone. Um, more on that in a moment. Uh, and you, you create a series of parallel lines or hatch lines, thin to thin, thin to thick. And over here, this is engraving. And uh, you can see that the line system is very sophisticated and that you would move from uh, transferring the outline of a drawing uh, from uh, paper to copper, once on copper, move through the, um, uh, from etching to finished engraving, and it's pretty much house style. Blake was very good at doing just this sort of thing, but then so was the engraver next door. They all learned how to reproduce using what was called dot and lodgings um, technique. And you can see Um, well, this is, this is not, uh, when we looked at a Renaissance engraving, one of the hallmarks is all that white paper. You had black lines and white paper, and white is a uh, characteristic of drawing. In 18th century print, you don't see any white of the paper. All the paper, even the highlights, which look to the eye as white or very light, if you look closely, are hatched very, very finely. Uh, if you went into his bald head, you would see very fine lines. And this is a very sophisticated uh, system of reproducing. And what we have, this is a little clearer, you can see a little more when I'm talking about it. What we have in a reproductive engraving is the painter 
the draftsman who made the outline and the, re uh, the reduction of the image. Uh, over here, way over here, the engraver, the title, the publisher, the year, that's the inscription on the, on the plate. And it's interesting, when we, we look at the idea of art, where it originates. Uh, it originates here, in the mind, uh, in the artist, who's better dressed <laughs> than the reproducers. So you have here a, uh, a visual schemata of original and copy. Uh, here's where the original is. Uh, here's where the work originates uh, in the mind, and this is a very platonic notion of art, and then it, it is materialized, and all materialization of an ideal form will be in some form or another a distortion or a translation. Uh, Blake is very different in this. He really believes that the work of art isn't transcendent, but it's really uh, uh, the material reality. Um, more on that in a moment. So it moves from the mind, the inspiration from the mind to the drawing to the outline that's etched to the finished engraving. You can see that we're moving further and further away from the spark, the original idea, which is one reason that engravers were not considered full artists. They were not given full membership in the Royal Academy uh, in the 18th century. They were seen as uh, copyists only. Uh, this bothered a lot of engravers, and it really bothered Blake. And there were various strategies to raise the status of uh, engravers. Uh, one by just pointing to uh, engraving as the art of translation, that it's a virtuoso performance in uh, uh, this new syntax to produce the kinds of effects that they can produce. Uh, so even if they're not original, uh, they should be treated as creative artisans. Um, now, that is engraving etching and the combination of etching and engraving where the modern engraver thought that he was better than the Renaissance because he started off as etching, which gave him the fluidity of, the, uh, of etching and then finished it engraving, which gave him the dignity and the solidity of the engraving. Um, the, some of the techniques to break out of that conventional syntax uh, is seen in facsimile reproduction. Now this is, this is fascinating uh, because the number of drawings that we began to see uh, reproduced in the latter part of the 18th century reflects changes in aesthetic taste. That idea of the original spark uh, being the most vital part of the artistic process now becomes something we recognize as characteristic of Romanticism. Uh, and not, not neoclassicism, but it's already emerging in the taste for drawings. And the taste for drawings and works on paper uh, motivates the development of new technologies to reproduce these, um, uh, this, the codes of pen and brush. Um, and this, this is fascinating. This is a, um, a drawing by Raphael reproduced in facsimile in color to size. Uh, and given the frame, which is a mark that it is an autonomous aesthetic object. Vasari was the first to really put his drawing collection in frames, in mats, uh, claiming that these were uh, artistic works in their own right, not just preliminaries to something else, but something that can be enjoyed uh, as beautiful artifacts. 
artists have often uh, had always uh, collected drawings because they learn from drawings. They learn how the other artists are thinking and solve technical problems. So you have two kinds of people collecting drawings up through the Renaissance up to the 18th century before it really becomes more of a popular uh, item to collect. And those were connoisseurs and collectors. And in the 18th century, you had uh, people think that uh, drawing, the appreciation of drawing, was the real mark of a connoisseur because they were so much more demanding of the intellect and the imagination because you had to actually complete the work and in doing so enter that creative process, enter the mind slash studio of the work uh, where it originated. And you were closer to uh, that spark of inspiration than you were when it went through its various modes of reproduction, whether it was into painting or into uh, a print. Uh, so what we're seeing in the latter part of the 18th century, from 1750 to 1790, uh, is this incredible emergence of new technologies and the popularity of drawing among the middle class who began to collect this kind of work. This is from a, a volume by Charles Rogers from 1778 called Imitations of Old Master Drawings, in fact similar. Uh, and this is another... This is from about 1783, uh, and it's using uh, conventional etching, as this was, to reproduce the codes of drawing. Now, this means the etcher or the graphic artist is hiding his own hand. He's not. He, his uh, his objective is to fool you into thinking this is the original artifact. That's what effect simile is trying to do. Uh, only lets you know it's a facsimile, otherwise it'd be a forgery. Um, but the idea is to give you the experience of the original, get you as close to that as, as you can. And to do that meant subordinating their own uh, conventional uh, syntax in favor of the original codes. And in this case, it was pen and ink. So you're trying to imitate pen and ink. And you see what I mean by the various drawings that were being uh, reproduced. Uh, over here, this is a chiaroscuro from the early 18th century, uh, and it has a key block, a tone block, um, and it's what's fascinating is that it is attempting to uh, re to reproduce or value the uh, artist's initial doodles and initial thinking, uh, the initial inspiration. Same over here, where you it isn't so much the composition, it is him working it out, that you're, you're actually seeing the creative process unfolding. This was so popular uh, in reproducing this kind of old master drawings in uh, facsimile that you had uh, Cipriani, an Italian artist in the 1780s working in London, uh, producing sketches for the market. Because there is a market here. And he's producing hundreds of these little doodads, some soft erotica. And his friend, another Italian, Bodolocci, uh, was reproducing them in stipple, which I'll show you in a moment. And this was a whole industry. Now, this is one of my favorite. This is a Van Eyck uh, pen and ink drawing. And it's a pretty good facsimile. Um, of a pen and ink until you look closely. And here's that brush mark. And you can see it's very carefully delineated line by line. So the spontaneity of the original is a complete illusion 
in the facsimile. There is no way you can reproduce something like this facsimilizing the process, so you're reproducing the end product or its look, and you're doing so with etching needles and other tools, and you're, doing, you're laying in your lines very carefully, creating the illusion uh, of the original. So the, you can see here uh, other artists wanting to solve the problem of how to reproduce autographic gesture in metal, but having to do so with metal tools. Right? It's still using the, the... Now, the first attempt to really uh, produce the marks of brushes or break out of that line, that uh, line system was mesotint. And mesotint is a, tonal, a pure tonal process, and it was used throughout the late 17th and early 18th, and throughout the 18th century uh, to reproduce uh, oil painting because its perfect gradations could reproduce. And these were often uh, uh, hand-painted or printed in colors, and there are no lines, it's just a series of tones. But it could be used quite creatively uh, to create also the look of wash drawings with a little bit of mesotint rocker back in here. This is precedes aquatint, but aquatint will uh, take over uh, by 1776. Uh, these were about 1760 by Irlom. Now, here's one of the first really tonal methods developed. It's stipple or chalk engraving. And you can see they're developing new tools a roulette, uh, this uh, metoir, and it can reproduce the look of chalk or pencil on paper. And here's another one by Bodolochi, who had a whole huge studio turning this stuff out. And uh, this work, now this one is French, and it was printed on uh, two or three different uh, plates, perfectly registered, and uh, a form of color printing. Uh, sometimes it would be five or more plates perfectly registered, each plate carrying one color. And uh, a lot of these were made after Bateau, Fragonard's chalk drawings, and were trimmed of their plate line, because this is an intaglio method, so it would have a plate mark. And trimmed of the plate mark, they really do look like chalk drawings, and in many, many museums you will find them in the drawing. Uh, because they faked out curators for hundreds of years. Uh, in, the, in England, however, they didn't print uh, in color that way. In England, they printed what was called a la poupée, French sounding, a French term, meaning little dollies, really, and, and it's little uh, cut brushes that are applying uh, paint to the copper plate, uh, printing it with ink at one time, and then finishing the impression with uh, watercolors. I mention that because that's really what Blake is going to do. He's going to adapt that technique. Uh, but you can see how popular Stipple was, not for book illustration, but for the, the, the market for separate prints, for the prints you would put in your parlor. There are, there are so many of these uh, subtle uh, tonal drawings, uh, these prints in imitation of chalk drawings or pastel. This one is an imitation of chalk. This is really fascinating, too. The first three I showed you was um, Raphael. And this one is Michelangelo. And Blake's favorite artists were Raphael and Michelangelo. And yet there were no Raphael or Michelangelo in England at this time. Blake had never seen a Raphael or Michelangelo. He only knew them in translation. 
or I would argue he knew them uh, in facsimile. Uh, many of the drawings he knew in facsimile because his teacher, and this is a very little known fact, and I don't know why, his teacher here, uh, this fellow, Bessire, B-A-S-I-R-E, uh, James Bessire, who was the uh, uh, head engraver of the Society of, Antiqu uh, Society of Antiquities, um, Antiquaries, Society of Antiquaries, <laughs> was one of the finest facsimilists of his day. He did so many of this kind of work. So Blake would have been exposed to a lot of Raphael and Michelangelo drawings while not seeing any of the uh, original work. Now this is um, the first technique created where you could actually reproduce the look of a pencil by using a pencil, by using a, a tool other than uh, a roulette or a metal instrument, trying to imitate the codes of the original work. And this is called soft ground etching. The ground here has been cut with tallow or uh, fatty substance. So now it will absorb, it will, uh, what I'm doing is simply writing in text with a pencil. And when I pull the paper, it pulls off some of the ground and the texture of the paper uh, has been mixed with that uh, pulling away so that the end result is an intaglio plate but it uh, has the look of pencil and chalk. Uh, this technique was used for many of the drawing books, which became enormously popular in the 1780s, 1790s. It was used by Gainsborough in early 1780, when he began moving from painting into graphic art. He uh, began, uh, this is the original, he wanted to reproduce it, keeping all the same codes of uh, charcoal and drawing, and he used soft ground etching and did a really quite a marvelous facsimile of his own work. Aquatint uh, was developed in uh, France and in England separately, and in England around 1775. Uh, and Aquatint is, a, again, a truly tonal method uh, where you're trying to reproduce the, uh, the look of wash, of uh, wash drawing. And uh, I'm going to move through this quickly and not explain Aquatint so much. This is um, Paul Sandy, 75, he was the first uh, to really work in Aquatint in England. Uh, I want to look at the close-up here. These dark marks up in here. Aquatint works uh, with uh, spirit grounds. Um, and a process of uh, stopping out. I'm going to explain stopping out in a minute. You're um, using brushes, not in the initial design, but in the uh, execution of the work. Uh, you may have an outline done with a needle, and then those tonal patterns done with, uh, with a, uh, a resin ground, okay, that you float on top of the plate. Uh, often in alcohol, uh, but there's a, there's a process, the point I'm really showing is that there's a process, a step within the aquatint uh, process that allows you to work these dark areas with a real brush, and that's, that's really what I want to show. And that technique was used to produce these, and the technique is called Uh, 
technique is called sugar lift aquatech. I want to get this in focus for you. This pen and ink drawing by uh, Alexander Cousin is a print. It looks like a blot drawing, and it was meant to. It was in his drawing books, uh, in his drawing book from 1784. And uh, what I'm interested in here is how Gainsborough moved from this drawing to this. Now, right here, you see the marks of a brush in metal. This is a print. The technique is called sugar lift aqua tint. It was a technique that Picasso favored. Uh, and many 20th century artists continue to use to, to this day. It's a fascinating uh, technique. Um, and Gainsborough was in Sandby and, a few, and Cousins and a few others were the only ones using it in the 1780s. This all precedes Blake's development. And what I want to see is how he got away, how he was able to do this. There's no needle marks, there's no roulettes. It's real pen and ink. And the way he did this was he made the lift a solution, the ink, which is made with ink and water and sugar. And I'm drawing with this water-soluble ink. There's the design. And then I cover it with a liquid ground, a very thin ground. Now you can see I've actually worked with a quill pen and a brush. So I've actually worked with the tools of the original artifact, the drawing. I want to reproduce a drawing, a pen and wash drawing, and I'm using pen and uh, a liquid and brushes. <clears throat> and then a very thin ground. Now what's happening is I've submerged this in water, and within about 30 minutes, the water is breaking through the thin ground and is filling the sugar molecules or the treacle or whatever was used uh, and is lifting through the ground. And so now I have a negative of, uh, that's ready to be etched. But all my marks are the marks made with a pen or a brush. Uh, at this point, I would add an etching ground uh, a resin ground if I want to. But, and you can see, once again, it's an intaglio play. It's, it's, uh, and this is what it could have produced. But the important step here is that Gainesville took out of the aquatint process one step and developed a whole new technique that instead of using this lift process to do the fancy ribbons, on uh, women's dresses, which are pure, pure black uh, in, in the production process, he took that one step and developed uh, a whole new way of reproducing his, his work. All right. Now remember, we went back uh, to uh, the origin of these reproductions, in fact, similes, is uh, a drawing on uh, paper, right? I mean, that's where the work is, and then it's transferred onto the uh, copper plate, uh, either through a caulking method, this is called caulking, it's just basic carbon method, or counterproof, where you have the drawing and you place it face down, and uh, now, and you pass it through the press, you can dampen the drawing, uh, and you can't see it too 
clearly, I'm afraid. But you, uh, the, the silvery graphite uh, is now on the plate, and I know what my design is, and I know what to cut uh, with my etching needle. Uh, the advantage of this technique is that if, if you want your print to be in the same direction as your original drawing, you counterproof, because everything a print does, uh, you know, a print is the reverse direction of the plate. So if you want the original and the uh, print to be in the same direction, you counterproof. If you're not concerned, you can call, because that puts it in the reverse direction. Uh, I'm showing you that technique of uh, transfer, because it's used in all of these methods, except legs. Like he's not going to use that, and that's what makes it one of the most original things in his mode of production. And it's what makes it a mode of production and not reproduction. And more on that in a moment. Alright, now here is, I've, I've transferred to an etching because I need to. I need to see what, what to cut out. Um, and I see what I'm cutting out. Over here I'm etching it. I'm uh, agitating the acid with uh, a feather. And I'm taking this uh, step right here in the etching. Remember, we, we did this. Here are our tools. Now we're going to use stop out. This is a, a little uh, resin dissolved in turpentine. Um, it was called a varnish. It's, it's, it's a misnomer. It's not a real varnish. Uh, also liquid ground. Stopping. And what you, use, what you do with stopping is here's your design. Well, let's say this is your design. And you stop out these lines back here, and then you etch the plate again for five more minutes. And then you take it out, you rinse it, and you stop out these lines. Meanwhile, this one is being etched four times, five minutes apiece, and getting deeper and deeper. And if the lines get deeper, they hold more ink. The more ink the lines hold, the blacker they print. If the lines are very shallow, they're going to print light. By varying the depth of the line, you vary the tone in the drawing. Right? Now, in etching, the only way to do that is through stopping out, inviting the plate multiple times, stopping out uh, various areas of the design each time. In engraving, you do it by simply pushing deeper. The deeper you push, the deeper the line. The lighter you push, the lighter the line. And so, you, I'm stopping out over here because I, I think those lines are deep enough. Etching. I'm going to clean the uh, plate of its. Uh, here's my plate. I beveled the edge because I need to. The edge would cut through the paper since I need to print with so much force. I'm going to make ink. Uh, ink is here made with burnt linseed oil and uh, dry pigment. Forcing the ink into uh, the plate, into the entire plate, the incised lines. I'm wiping the plate of ink off the surface. Inking is a is a field unto itself. Uh, Blake was very proud of Mrs. Blake, who uh, printed m many of Blake's own intaglio works, engravings, and etchings, uh, as well as jobbed out and did the work uh, for other printers. Uh, and then I'm palm wiping it. So the surface of the ink, this in commercial engraving in uh, uh, England, 
there was no room for plate tone. <laughs> plate tone that we see in Rembrandt and then again in Whistler and later 19th century engravers using the, manipulating the uh, oil residue of the ink on the surface of the plate to reproduce atmospheric effects uh, is, is really an old and a modern uh, idea, and in commercial art, no, we want the pure white of, of the paper. So it's it's a lot of work uh, dampening uh, the paper, cut the size, printing it on a rolling press, and taking an impression, impression and you see what I mean by the, the plate mark and why I had to bevel it in order to I'm having to print with such pressure. I'm dampening the paper so the paper can take, uh, is soft enough and flexible enough to go inside those uh, incised lines and pull the ink out. And, uh, okay, so now we have an etching. Blake was a master of this. Now we're going to look at relief etching and see where Blake uh, is original or. Uh, I said about transfers. Blake did not transfer drawings to his copper plates. He did not work up his page design first in paper and then move them to copper, uh, which is what you see everywhere else. That's the, the normal paradigm for reproduction. Uh, what Blake would do is he might have a, a vignette, he might have a little drawing, a napkin or a notebook, uh, and then he simply would redraw it freehand. And you can see what I mean winning the print, the plate, and the impression are contraries, are in reverse order. And so this fact that we have a vignette of this design, and it doesn't match one-to-one -one at all, and is the reverse, tells me that he had to redraw it. Why did he caulk it? Which is, it would have given him, would have placed the drawing onto the plate. He didn't because technically it's impossible. If you caulk a drawing, onto a degreased copper plate, and then you go over it with your liquid ground, as Blake did. Your liquid ground is adhering to the particles of chalk and not to the copper plate. And in a very uh, strong acid bath, like Blake had to use to create a relief surface, you would lose your design. So technically, the transfer methods that were available would not work uh, for illuminated printing, uh, at least with one exception show in a moment. Uh, so Blake is not having to uh, work up. He's, he's actually using the copper plate as the original site of his compositions. It's, it's the place where text and image will come together. Here's Blake showing us that he's not using counterproofs or, uh, or caulking transfers. He's simply writing directly backwards. Of course, the joke there is that he's writing that one forward. <laughs> and there's Albion sleeping, the, his reader. And what I've done here is simply looked at the various 18th century recipes for stop-out varnish and, uh, that were you know, recorded in various engraving manuals. And I'm finding one that works the best for me. It's very important that the uh, stop-out varnish that I use to write with okay, works like, pan, like ink. That, because if it... Uh, gives me any resistance, that'll show up in the uh, plate and in the impression. So it's very important to get the um, ink, this ink, to uh, come off the quill very uh, uh, easily, just like uh, real pen and ink. Now the exceptions to the transfer 
is uh, Blake's white line etching. This is really quite amazing. Here we can see he had a drawing and he counterproofed it to the plate and then he etched it with needles and hopes. Uh, he had to do it because the technique required. He would not have been able to work negative and positive together this way without some kind of outline. Uh, so there are examples in the later uh, prophecies where he would use uh, a transfer. Uh, and for something like this, he might uh, transfer an outline just so you can see what you're going to be cutting out. But not for the text and not for the whole plate design. There's a very localized... Uh, this is more white line etching. This is um, Lake's Death Door, one of the most famous uh, works of his, and perhaps in, in the whole period of uh, romantic uh, graphic art. Uh, <laughs> this is how it was finally reproduced. Blake, this is this is Blake. Um, this is Blake in your face. Is what it is. It's really confrontational graphics. This is uh, <coughs> pointing to itself and saying, "I'm a print, and nothing else but a print. I'm not an imitation of anything. I'm not a translation of anything." And it's clearly influenced by sketch and the idea. It has the energy of the sketch. And he brought this to a publisher where he already had the commission to reproduce. Uh, 12 uh, engravings uh, after uh, Blair's The Grave, and the publisher completely freaked out. And you can understand why. You cannot see what you don't know. And nobody had ever seen anything like that uh, in 1805. And the publisher looked like that and said, oh my God, my entire investment is down the, the, the drain. No one is going to buy this book if the illustrations look like that. They won't even know how to look at this stuff. Um, and this was how Blakey he involved a technique in his own private world, uh, and he tried to bring it into a larger world, uh, and it just didn't fly. And he lost the commission, and when it was finally reproduced, in that conventional syntax of the day, it's nice and polished and very clean, and doesn't have any of the materiality, the brutal physical force of, uh, of the original. All right, let's make a relief etching now. That stop-out varnish, that one step in etching that was so important in creating uh, tone, tonal values in uh, an etching. Uh, Blake took that, uh, adapted it for his own purposes, maybe added a few drops of linseed oil so it flows very easily like ink. That's what I'm doing here. I'm making it, uh, this is a spaltum varnish, that's spaltum dissolved in turpentine. I'm adding a little lamp black. I'm going to add a little uh, linseed oil, and voila, I'm able to work with a, uh, an ink that is impervious to acid with a quill and with a brush. And I'm going to work up my design. I'm simply writing backwards. This is not difficult. There was many, for many, many, many years, it was thought that Blake had to use a transfer technique uh, for his work uh, because all that backward text as though writing backwards would have been some kind of problem to a trained engraver. Uh, that's how they would sign their names. It's, it's not difficult. Uh, da Vinci wrote all his notebooks backwards. Writing backwards is, is not hard. So here's the design. I've, I've, I've used the, the, the copper plate uh, almost like a sheet of paper. 
I'm, I'm writing, I've brought together my text and my image for the first time. Um, there is no preliminary drawing of this. It's not something he could have worked up on paper and then reproduced. Uh, so uh, his mode is to produce his page design, uh, work to invent them while executing them. Uh, what I've done here is just, I'm just showing you, uh, this plate is on the table. This is a brush mark, and Blake has gone into the brush mark with uh, a fine needle and to create a pattern and white line. And that's where the white line etching originated that I showed you from uh, Jerusalem. Like a very stone. Now, once I have the um, the drawing, I have diked the plate with uh, wax walls. Remember that little boy? There's our copper plate. I'm pouring acid, and the acid is having a field bed. It has never seen so much exposed metal before. Do you know what the etchings look like? The lines that were exposing metal were very thin and only a certain amount of metal was exposed. Here, it, almost all, everything is exposed except the design, right? And the acid is going nuts. So I have to be very careful. Uh, and there is that boy feathering. I'm feathering the gas bubbles because the gas bubbles are assigned undercutting. That's a problem. If it gets underneath that uh, varnish, uh, that ink, uh, it's going to lift it and I'm going to lose my design. So I've got to be very careful. Uh, and now, there are no copper plates in Blake. Uh, they were all sold, we're told, uh, for scrap metal in the mid-19th century. Uh, the only remnant is this tiny little right here. And that plateau means that Blake used a stop-out uh, step. Uh, there was a, a stopping out in the pr uh, production of the plate. And so that's what I'm doing here. I've etched the initial etching for like 40 minutes or so to get a slight relief of the plate. And then uh, I'm going to uh, stop out uh, the fine details and etch the plate again in two steps. And in doing so, I will have uh, those little counters in the E and the A between letters. They don't have to be too deep. <laughs> uh, a shallow bite is enough. Uh, but the area over in here, that's all going to have to be bitten a lot deeper. Otherwise, when I ink, the dabber is going to touch down and I'm going to get a blemish on my paper. Uh, this is really what a copper plate looks like when it's etched with nitric acid, not this. This is zinc, and I'm using zinc over here because uh, I did so many of these uh, for demonstration purposes. Uh, it would have, you know, zinc is a tenth the cost of copper. <laughs> And so for me, it was an economic uh, reason that I chose to demonstrate using zinc. But zinc is something that was used in the later 19th century throughout the 20th century. In the 18th century, they used copper, and copper turns blue uh, when it's being bitten. But all my research on the subject was done initially with copper plates. And then for the demos, I just went cheap. <laughs> there's our, our, what our plate would look like once it's etched, and there's our relief etching. And so it's uh, done with uh, pen and ink and brushes, uh, etched in relief. And now we can, inking this plate is much easier than an Italian plate uh, with this uh, linen dabber. You did not use a roller. Rollers weren't invented yet. They weren't invented until 1819. Uh, so you use this awkward 
uh, tool here, and it, using this border created by those wax walls uh, and the dense text and the interlinear decorations, which serve a function, not just an aesthetic but a look, but a function of keeping the data supported. It's one reason um, why you want, uh, or Blake wanted, uh, a dense text. It's easier to ink. <laughs> uh, and what I'm doing here is wiping the borders uh, and wiping those cave forms from the plate, uh, and that deletes them from the paper. If you wipe the ink, it doesn't show. And that's what it would look like. And it would look like uh, more of a exposition out of the paper than an imposition onto the paper. The one characteristic of drawing, the other of printmaking. Something coming into or under the paper versus something emerging uh, and penning from the paper. So it has more of a manuscript look uh, when Blake uh, wiped the borders. This is the, uh, the printing of the uh, impression. And you can see the ink, the guy's wiping the plate. And, well, the, the way the Blakes did this is that Mrs. Blake would handle the press. She was the clean hand person. Ink, printmaking is simultaneously the cleanest and dirtiest of all arts. Uh, you're dealing with you know, oily black ink <laughs> or colored inks uh, and pristine white paper. And so uh, you need a devil. Uh, the devil is the printer's uh, helpmate. And Mrs. Blake was Blake's uh, devil, as well as inspiration, I'm sure. She handled the press and uh, the, uh, the paper, and Blake would have been inking it up, and they would be going back and forth, and they would be printing uh, multiple impressions of their... Uh, now we're going to illuminate the illuminated plate, uh, illumination uh, in the form of watercolors. Uh, it's the same dry pigment, only the vehicle, instead of burnt oil or linseed oil, I'm going to use uh, gum arabic and varying the density of the uh, uh, color uh, by adding water. It's just basic watercolor. And I can move from something very simple, like this. This is from 1790. Something extraordinarily elaborate to a miniature painting where he printed the borders cave forms, gave it uh, its own independent frame line. Uh, so here in 1790, he's treating it more like a uh, manuscript page or uh, more of a drawing. And by 1827, when he's reprinting it, he's treating it, in, in the, the artifact, more like a uh, painting. Be very careful, those of you who teach Blake, and think, well, everyone is uh, different and every impression's difference uh, implies revision. Uh, editorially speaking, as though Blake intended to make these changes and the changes comment or variant, or, or variant on some ideal or exemplary copy. No, it didn't work that way. Uh, <laughs> these two were printed uh, back to back, and you can see they're really quite alike. Uh, the two I just showed you a moment ago were uh, 1790 and 1827 printed uh, in two different production styles. So of course they're very different. But if you look at works printed in the same printing session, uh, the differences are really quite minor. And it may be that Mrs. Blake is coloring one uh, and Mr. Blake the other. Uh, Bell has a blue dress in one impression and a red dress in another. Is it important? Probably not. 
probably Mrs. Blake had the red, and Blake said, fine, honey, that's, I'll just paint her in green. So it didn't really matter. Uh, and you can see what I mean. The, the early copies of the songs, was, this is a trick that a lot of uh, teachers uh, who teach Blake who, who like to do. They like to go from like this and this and see, see the differences, and it's very ahistorical to do that. <laughs> Historically, if you look at the works produced at the same time, the same gestures, the same palette is at work, uh, the same idea of uh, the impressions that were. These were 17, this is 1789, these two were done in 1811. And these are different books, but you can see what I mean by style. Uh, the style is very similar, uh, and by this time, he's printing really to make his works look more like uh, a painting. Uh, what variation on producing illumination or color is to color print, to add the color to this very thick uh, water miscible color mixed with some glue uh, onto the plate itself and then finish it up in watercolors. Because you, you, this is how the a la poupée technique was done with stipple uh, in mesotin. You would put the ink uh, and the colors together through the press at the same time, but then you would finish it in watercolors. Like it here. The uh, effect, though, is for a print to now imitate not the marks uh, or look of a drawing, but of uh, a painting, a la, uh, you know, like a, an oil sketch. This is amazing. This is this is uh, the frontispiece to Visions of the Daughters of Albion from 1793, done as a colored print. Printed this in about 1794. It's uh, nothing like it in graphic art. It's really what we would call a model print. It is a marriage of uh, printmaking and painting. Indeed, uh, when Blake was initially printing from 1789 to about 94 or so, uh, he printed on both sides of the paper, so he could have facing paper. He printed recto verso, in other words, so he could have that basic characteristic of the book, the diptych, the facing page. Uh, by 1794-95, when he begins experimenting with that color printing, and he's having to use more pressure, and he's changing the look of the, the page, he begins to print on only one side of the paper. And when you print on one side of the paper, you open the book, and it looks like this. Your experience as a reader changes. The artifact, the nature of the artifact changes, and your attention is not diverted by any competing uh, page, but is now uh, focused on the one. And this is when Blake started more elaborately coloring and putting in frame lines because he began treating the page less as a page of poetry and more as a uh, painting. Uh, from the color print uh, illustrations, uh, Blake developed uh, a series of monoprints in 1795 uh, that are really a marriage of printmaking and uh, painting. Uh, they're really phenomenal. You can see that he just used one of his own little vignettes here and we redrew it on a big, um, these, these are about this big, about 20 by 30 inches, with fairly large size. And he also did, at times, take his own work, mask the text, print it <laughs> in color prints, and give it a border so he makes an autonomous drawing. And two collectors wanted these from Blake in 1796. Uh, uh, Osea Humphreys, who ordered one, said, was himself a great miniaturist painter. <laughs> and he really appreciated these uh, as miniatures. 
Now, we come to the end and the question of uh, how Blake solved the, the problem of, uh, of reproducing in metal the marks of uh, pen and ink and brushes, autographic gesture. Uh, these are thought to be some of the earliest uh, relief etchings uh, from about 1788. This little drawing here, and this this is the size of about this is about two by three inches, a little less, like the size of a big postage stamp. Uh, and he's still working. It's a fairly nice little drawing. Um, but I would argue that this is. The first drawing. Not those two little tiny things, both of them are very small, but this one, which is about 8 by 11 inches, the size of a loose leaf sheet, uh, this is 1788. I would argue, that I do argue, <laughs> written on this, that this is the, uh, Blake's first experiment in relief etching, and it used to be thought to be 1793 instead of 1788, because it looks a little bit like this white line etching that Blake uh, did for America, a prophecy, 1793. But this is so much more controlled in its use of needle and engraving uh, through those brush uh, marks and background than this is. This, there's something else going on here. Let's look a little closer. What I see is the breakdown of a spirit ground of a kind that was used in aquatint. It's resin dissolved in alcohol, not turpentine. And I know that because I know the way an alcohol uh, ground breaks when you move a needle through it. You can see how it's chipping and how it's biting? It's breaking down um, in a pattern. And there were actually discussions of just this sort of thing in late 18th century and early 19th century treatises on aquatint. Uh, because Aquatin itself, the first manual was not published until 1796. Uh, but, uh, so Blake would not have had access to any printed record, but he seems to have been experimenting with a liquid ground uh, using an alcohol base instead of turpentine. And what it is, what we're looking at in the approach of doom, is Blake's attempt to reproduce a wash drawing by his brother, who died in 1788, who Blake said gave him the technique and the vision. Blake's idea, if you asked Blake where did it come from, Blake would have said, point to his head and said, my brother. And he did, he said this in a letter. Uh, his brother Robert had given him the technique in a dream or a vision. And what I believe Blake did was reproduce his brother, who he was teaching to be an artist, this drawing, this washed pen and ink drawing, wanted to reproduce it in metal. And he did so using pen and brush and with some kind of liquid that was impervious to acid. And he started using uh, alcohol resin ground along with uh, some maybe turpentine varnish. My point in this, we can raise the lights. The, the point is that the origin of illuminated printing and illuminated books lies in Blake's desire to reproduce image, not text, but image. And it went from image, given the tools he was using, pen and ink 
and brush brushes move very easily into text. After all, pen and ink is the same medium that you use uh, for uh, text. Uh, as opposed to thinking Blake was primarily a poet, lucky enough to illustrate himself, and that he was concerned with a mode of reproducing designs uh, that he had worked up on paper, and nobody else would reproduce them. And so he had to figure out his own method of reproducing his poetry. That simply doesn't uh, uh, bear out in the uh, critical record or the, the evidence. Uh, there's no uh, evidence Blake went to uh, any publisher with the Songs of Innocence, any of those poems, which are beautiful lyrical poems, not like Jerusalem or Your Reason or Death's Door, which rightfully would scare a publisher who would hope to make some money. But these beautiful songs like Little Lamb, uh, Laughing Song, I mean, there's no record of Blake trying to hit the man up for a contract uh, to publish his work. So the notion that Blake somehow had this body of work Nobody would publish him, so he had to figure out his own way of uh, publishing himself uh, and wanted to do so to free himself economically from the system is simply a myth. It sounds wonderful. It's the kind of the myth of the artist as, as hero when he's fighting the establishment. But if you look at it economically, uh, it doesn't hold up because something like Songs of Innocence in 1789, he prints 20 some times with his wife three different quick uh, printings, uh, small printings. Uh, after paper and copper and uh, materials, since he's only selling the damn thing for uh, five uh, shillings, he would net less than five pounds. If he sold out, if he sold out his whole uh, run, he would make five pounds. Blake made 15 to 80 pounds engraving one plate, depending on its size and for whom. Uh, Blake knows that the economics here are not going to free him from his day job. Uh, so the idea that Blake is motivated to invent his own technique and do everything himself as a way of making lots of money and freeing himself from the system, of the public system, simply isn't true. Uh, Blake says himself that he had hoped to make his name as an artist uh, in doing this. And if you recognize that Blake is an artist and a printmaker who happens also to write poetry, as opposed to approaching him from a literary perspective, thinking him first and foremost a poet lucky enough to be able to illustrate himself, you begin to see a very different Blake. You begin to see that him doing all the stages of production is not so remarkable, because that's what artists do. That's what he did for every original engraving, every original etching. He drew it, he etched it, he printed it on his own press, and he, for a while, sold it out of his own shop. So the idea of him handling all the modes of production is only radical if he were Wordsworth, and he tried to print himself. That would be something, or Shelley, or Keats. But coming at it as an artist, no. Wanting to do all of the different stages was very much in keeping with his uh, life and work as an artist. So one last point, uh, with this image preceding text, I think his initial desire was to reproduce um, in metal the look and feel of pen and ink in the 
wash. And from that initial execution, uh, new ideas began to generate. You began to see the possibilities. Because artists do this all the time. They do something and they see it, the possibilities uh, of other projects where execution begins to generate new inventions. And what we have in Blake is someone who is successful at reproducing the marks of pen and ink in metal, not because he's reproducing actual pen and ink that he has first executed in paper, but because he's facsimilized the process of drawing. He's not facsimilizing a product, but a process. He literally is drawing on the copper plate with the tools of the poet and the painter. 